Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Before we begin and dive in, I want to thank my wife for coming with me, Doxa, for coming with me. Let's give God a hand praise for them one more time. And um, there's a video that I want you guys to see that'll set the stage for our time today. You can roll it. I have a very interesting take on the cultural impact of hip hop, and it's a strong one. You know, so I just want to prepare people for that at home. Um, I think that hip hop has done more for racial relations than most cultural icons. And, and, and I say save Martin Luther King because his dream speech we realized when President Obama got elected. But the impact of the music, you know, this music didn't only influence kids from urban areas, it influenced people all around the world people listened to this music all around the world and took to this music. And racism is taught in the home. I truly believe that racism is taught when you're young. So it's very difficult to teach racism when your kid looks up to Snoop Doggy Dog. And if you look at clubs and how integrated they had become before people partied in separate clubs, there were hip hop clubs and there were techno clubs and now people party together and, and once you have people partying, dancing and singing along to the same music, then conversations naturally happen after that, right? And then within conversations that we, we all realize that we're more alike than we're separate. Father, as we dive into your word, be with us during this time as we seek uh, to see the gospel bridge the gaps that only it can bridge. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Everybody else agree with that? Say it. Amen. Amen. Uh, what a <laughs> stunning uh, critique by a cultural icon and uh, a person that is very, very influential in culture cross-ethnically and globally to begin to talk about one of the unintended consequences of a form that was developed in the Bronx, and according to who you talk to, some would say uh, Jamaica uh, via Cool Herc. Um, this cultural phenomenon called hip hop culture and Jay-Z communicating and beginning to talk about the unintended consequences uh, that this musical form that was created in a minority context and developed its prominence in the mid to late 80s and began to develop its embedded identity in the early 90s. And now, I don't know where it's going now, but, uh, but, but we find ourselves in that reality. And what, what, what could, as I listen to that, it's almost something that we as the church need to begin uh, to think through. Um, I, I don't think anyone would look at uh, what Jay-Z said and really say um, that he's necessarily sociologically wrong. Um, when, when, when I look back at a National Geographical, a geographic article that came out in about uh, 2007, it began to lay out this cultural art form's uh, global influence. I mean, you saw people in the bush and uh, in Tibet with, uh, with, 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 with hoodies 
on and fitteds and snapback caps and listening to art. They had people that were picking rice in Asia in water and pulling up rice, and they had on earphones and listening to this art form bumping as they're picking up rice. You can only imagine seeing the Asian mothers getting it in um, hip-hop style, picking up rice. I mean. It's interesting that we would maybe say, oh, that's just music. Oh, that's just an art form. However, uh, there is a global imprint that uh, hip-hop culture has had on the sociological, socio-economic formation of today's uh, person and entrepreneurialism on some level. And so the question we would have to ask as the church, uh, do we have any unintended consequences that the gospel has made through our commitment to the gospel in such a way that it impacts people's lives? Well, let me answer a question for you. The gospel isn't supposed to have unintended consequences. It's supposed to have intended consequences. Uh, the, the gospel is a force to be reckoned with. And if hip-hop can transform or bring some level of common ground through ethnic minorities and ethnic majorities globally, how much more can the gospel, if intentionally engaged based on the theological and eternal epistemological intentions of God, why isn't it having greater impact? We have a passage that I would like to spend a little bit of our time in as we work through this idea today, which I'll give you in a second, let's look at chapter seven of Revelation. Chapter seven, if you don't mind standing real quick as I read this, if you don't mind in Epiphany Fellowship, we like to stand when the word is, that's the old head in me, the old school in me, the old Negro Baptist in me. When we stand up, don't say Negro, please. Just trust me, I can say that, don't say that. Um, don't even tweet that. Eric Mason just said, Negro, back. don't do that. Don't do that. Amen. That's for here. Verses 9 through about the 12th verse. We'll play with it a little bit. <sighs> here we go. It says, <clears throat> reading from the ESV version of the Bible, it says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Then one of the elders uh, addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? I said to him, sir, uh, uh, you know, and he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white with the blood of the lamb. I would like to talk about from this text today, seeing through the lens of the end, seeing from the lens of the end. You may be seated. 
It's interesting that this passage is written and its place in Revelation. Uh, many of us, particularly in the seminary arena, I remember going to Dallas Seminary and uh, on the seminary level, uh, passages like this can be more about whether you're uh, premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial, mid-wrath, pre-wrath view, uh, when you believe the rapture coming, there is no rapture coming, is there a little, and if you walk away with, from Revelation with all you do is an arguing eschatological nonsense, then what can happen is you can mix and miss the expositional and exegetical significance of the Christology of Revelation. Revelation is simply put, based on chapter one, verse three, it says the revelation of Jesus. If you walk away with I'm pre-millennial, if you walk away with I'm mid-wrath, if you walk away with I'm, I'm millennial, if you walk away with an argument about how he comes back versus worshiping the fact that he is coming back, you've missed the point. You missed the point, and, and, and this passage here is ferociously uh, used out of its context. <clears throat> this passage is used to emphasize the need for multi-ethnic churches. And can I say to you that this passage has nothing to do with that? It has nothing to do with pushing diversity. Uh-oh, it got real quiet in here. <laughs> Applicationally, it is. And I want to touch on some of those applicational nuggets. But one of the things that I've seen in the Bible is theologically one of the main reasons parousia passages are written. The apostles and the apostolic delegates wrote parousia passages to give hope. To give hope, <coughs> to give hope so that <clears throat> the end would impact the now. Now that, that, in other words, we're not supposed to look into the sweet by and by. I remember when I was growing up in the hip hop culture of the 80s and went into the 90s to black colleges uh, because, uh, uh, because, uh, because a different world told us we should go there. Some of y'all don't know a different world, it's okay, go look it up, a different world, great show. <coughs> came, is that show that came on after another show that I don't want to mention the name of because it may cause more controversy than, in, anyway. Um, but 2 Corinthians. <laughs> chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, and Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15, and 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 12, are passages that are written to, to, to people who are going through something very, very difficult. And the apostles wrote to them parousia passages in order to encourage them that trouble don't last always. And as a matter of fact, not just that trouble don't last always, it wasn't, parousia is not just about deliverance, it's about encouragement. It's about, it's about to encourage people who are going through hell and high water, who are working through different challenges, to begin to let the end of the, 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 the movie, a flick that Jesus is bringing to his return, cause us as believers on a street level to be, to be what I would call trailers of coming attractions. You and I are supposed to be gospel trailers. And so we come to this text and I have one point and I'm out your way. At one point, I think, well, how's this passage helping us to live in light of the end, seeing with the lens of the end? Number one and only point I have today, in eternity, in eternity, it's applicationally, in eternity, all ethnicities will be distinct yet unified because of Jesus. 
all ethnicities will be distinct. Somebody say distinct. Yet unified. Somebody say unified. Y'all can say that a little bit louder than that. Say unified. Yeah, yeah. Unified because of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's read through this passage. Very, very simple. I'm embarrassed at the simplicity yet biblical depth that this has to it. He says, uh, after this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before, I love this, the lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. I, I, I love this right here um, because I, I love this passage because this is a famous passage used by Jehovah Witnesses, AKA J-dubs. Um, that's what we call them around my neighborhood, J-dubs. And J-dubs love to take scriptures and reduce it to their own personal preferential doctrinal niche. And so they talked to me about 144,000 people. And I, I said, man, only 144,000 people are going to heaven. If you read verse 1 through 11, that's what you'll sort of think. But then I said, let's keep reading. And, 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 and he said, well, what you mean? See, you don't know. They have a book that has verse-by-verse verse answers for every single domination, including the Baptists. And they, 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 they're not, if you take them off of their road trip, they are lost and they're swimming in deep water. And so I begin to read. I said, after this, I said, after this. Now, after this is not a time because this is an eternity. He's talking about after he saw what he saw, 144,000 from every tribe. He says, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from every. I said, who are they? Well, who, who, who them? Who them right there, right? He, 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 and what they did at that point, they have a map and they put a red dot on your house if they can't snatch you in. Um, and so my house was marked and they never came to my home again. But here in this passage, we see something beautiful. We see the in-gathering, whatever your pragmatics look like or your theology looks like to get you here, all of us will be in eternity together one day. <clears throat> and we will be before the throne, and this is beautiful to me, that all of us will be before the throne and before the Lamb together. Now, now, now what the question that I'm asking on the floor is, how in the world did all of these people get there? How did they get there? Ultimately, by belief, in the fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins, by faith alone, through grace alone, through Christ alone, they placed their confidence in him. But I wondered from a practical, missiological standpoint, what were the streams of evangelistic and missiological influence that got all the nations, all the tribes, all of the tongues in heaven through proclamation? Because what does Romans say? How do they hear without a preacher? So there had to be men and women communicating the gospel through both life and lips to explicitly communicate within a particular cultural spheres and context to engage these type of people groups. So that means that people had to be sharing the gospel with their neighbors. 
That means they had to be church planting. Churches were being planted globally. That means that the church being persecuted, fighting in the midst of sharing the gospel based on the context. It was some altar calls. I know some of y'all are so spiritual, y'all don't believe in altar calls no more. They still work. <laughs> People sharing the gospel with their coworkers. Students sharing the gospel on their campuses. Multi-ethnic churches, yes, but also urban, rural, suburban, house churches, ex-urban churches, churches getting transitioned, women displaying biblical femininity, engaging women, men engaging in biblical masculinity, engaging men, outreach, social justice that impact how they view spiritual justice. And all of these people, through all of these different streams, God used them to leverage their streams to preach the gospel. Gospel. That means that means this to me, and this is beautiful in this passage, <laughs> that this passage isn't about multi-ethnic churches. If you come to this passage and you think every church ought to be multi-ethnic, you've lost your mind. It's, it's missiologically impossible for every church to be multi-ethnic. I get an email every week from a white brother or sister asking me, <clears throat> how do I diversify my church? I say, okay. Where are you located? In Watsahatchee, <laughs> in Omaha. I'm like, I'm confused. So, so how many black people there? Well, my neighborhood is 98% white. <laughs> so I'm, I'm really scratching my head trying to figure out um, I appreciate your heart for diversity. Appreciate that, but it ain't gonna happen. <clears throat> so be fine with the fact that God placed you there. You don't have to repent of racism by making your church multi-ethnic. And you don't have to get a black person on staff to be the diversity engineer to change the church. <clears throat> If I get one more person <clears throat> calling me, asking me to send the best and brightest from broken neighborhoods to middle upper class white neighborhoods, I'm gonna scream in 15 tongues. <laughs> well, why, why, why am I saying that? Because we have to stop treating multi-ethnicity as tokenism to soothe our racist consciences or to be an apologetic for, I'm not racist, I got a black guy on staff. In other words, th th this is about the gospel going out, not about helping you to close some doors that you may not wanna open again. And so what we have to begin to do is begin to see the missiological implications of this passage that there is a need for the black church. If I put one more black church post up and somebody tell me there's only one church, I'm like, I know that. But do you know the reason, do you know the reason why the black church exists? and why it's still needed, why there's a need for white churches. Now, the question is not why do these churches exist? The question is, do we view each other as polar fighters against each other and the mission, even though we may do ministry in different contexts? When you go to China, you don't say the church, you say the Chinese church. 
When you go to Yugoslavia, it's the Yugoslavian church. When you go to Ethiopia, it's the Ethiopian. So it's nothing wrong with churches that have such hardcore um, homogeneous culture that is so embedded that cross-cultural ministry from Westerners going into it, trying to Americanize it, only brings shame to the gospel, not glory to the gospel. So what are we to do? We may need to not just look multi-ethnically, but we may need to consider how can we come around people who need resourcing and not get culturally in their way and impute them with theological education, impute them with practical skills, impute them with resources and release them and commend them to the grace of God to be able to reach their own people to the glory of God, they're going to get in heaven not because your church is multi-ethnic but because somebody went to them engaged the gospel with them and then the gospel uh, caused revival and spread and strengthened them to be able to see the transformational power of God. (laughs) First it was be missional. That word got on my nerves. That was the sexy word. Missional. You know, let's not use church buildings anymore. Let's meet in bars and let's do all of this. And that was cool for a while. Missional communities was next. You know what I'm saying? Then church planting became popular. Now it's multi-ethnicity. And I don't mind certain things coming to the top as a way for us to zoom lens on particular needs that need to be engaged based on how the Spirit does His trajectory of work to aliven our minds to biblical applicational needs that may be helpful for gospel mission. But what's beautiful about this passage is it, it, the way the people of God in these passages came was beyond just multi-ethnic churches. And so I believe in diversity. Our church is multi-ethnic. And let me explain something to you. Multi-ethnic sounds sexy till you have it. I have all, we got all kinds of peoples from around the globe. And do you know what it's like being a black, black dude? Somebody will get that later. Um, before people who you don't know what you're offending them by what you're communicating, like maybe happening today. You don't know what it's like when you're pastoring as an African-American leader in a multi-ethnic church and whites wrestle with you because of the color of your skin. Wow, it got quiet on that part. Wrestling with that, where I had to sit down and have one of my white elders meet with me to counsel whites because many of them were uncomfortable because they thought I was too aggressive or, or something of that nature. I don't know where they got that from. And wrestling through the Haitians and the Nigerians and the Chinese and the Koreans. We think the black-white thing is something. Man, get the Chinese and the Koreans in the room. Good God Almighty. And what we're learning is so much about each other, how contextually selfish we are. Blacks, we want, we we have victimization issues and we have post-traumatic stress that's been handed down for 400 years that we're still getting over. Then you got whites who are dealing with white privilege and being in a black church, they see their white privilege, but they call it being left out. And so it's, it's, it's the struggle. The Asian life, we're like third class citizens. The Latinos are like, Pastor, what's good? The Nigerians, the Haitians, the Jamaicans. So we're trying to figure, this diversity is dirty. 
And so if you really want to push towards diversity and everybody begins to have an equal commitment to the pie, it's going to be some hardcore stuff going on there. And, 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 and with all of that being said and all of that being worked through in this passage, somehow through the messiness of non-multi-ethnic and multi-ethnic ministry, we get to heaven. I mean, that's the gospel. The gospel is specialized for messy. You know what I've learned most about multi-ethnic ministry is nobody's different. Everybody is a mess. I know we believe in total depravity, but every one of us are equally trifling. You see, why is heaven so excited? It says from every nation, people of different social groups, people of different tribes, different individual divisions. Coming back to this. It says people, social groups in the sense of geographical locations and all peoples. I love this. Since no people or subgroup wasn't represented in heaven. That's powerful to me. That God's sovereignty and the might of the gospel through Jesus Christ was enough in its diverse might to be able to penetrate every single culture. What I love about this is two things. First Corinthians 15 is about the content of the gospel. Romans chapter 116 is about the nature of the gospel. And the nature of the gospel, the content of the gospel, we know death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, raised on the third day, uh, 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 all, uh, 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 substitutionary, penal substitutionary atonement. Boom. But then Romans 1.16, what I love about Romans 1.16 is it doesn't just tell you the content of the gospel, it tells you what the gospel does. And so, as it being the power of God unto salvation, it's powerful enough to come overcome all of our idiosyncrasies, powerful enough to overcome our prejudices, powerful enough to jump over every hoop in our lives to get us to heaven together. And look what it says, and we are standing before the throne and before the Lamb. I love this. Because now it exalts God and Christ sitting next to him, showing us the reality of the, re a reality of the might of the power of Christ to overcome anything. And guess what we're standing there doing? We got our white robes. We got our white robes, it says right here in the passage, and we got our palm branches. Now this is a big worship set, right? This is the biggest worship set in eternity. This is what we call in the hood a booming set. You understand what I'm saying? I mean, this is a victory celebration because the palm branches are, are, are celebrate even contextually in their, in their culture, in Hellenistic culture, and in uh, the triumphal entry points to a victory celebration for someone. And everyone is celebrating that Jesus Christ took care of their sin. So they clothe the white robes, and I like this. It says, and crying with underline a loud voice. I like that. It said a voice, a voice, and it was loud. So we had unity of communication, yet that distinctiveness of languages. I wish I could speak in 10,000 tongues so I can display it and do it like at the same time. 
Because what you have here is people from Southern Africa, from Madagascar, uh, from Greenland. You have people from Persia. You have people from Egypt. You have people from Ethiopia. You have people from Australia. You have people pre and post reconstruction uh, uh, all over the world that is communicating in their own individual language, saying the same thing in their language about the God before the throne. In other words, God through the gospel brings us all to heaven and we have a unified hook with a loud voice. That means this wasn't just the Pentecostals and the Kojics, loud. This was everybody, because I don't know about you, but when I get before Jesus, and when I get before his throne, and when I see the glorious majesty of his excellence, and people that I hated, that I ain't never want to talk to, people that I ain't never seen before, ancient people and contemporary people, glorifying the living God, then I'm gonna forget about them and remember me, how messed up I was, how far from the peaceful shore I was, my need for him, and how he looked past my faults, saw my knees, dealt with it on the cross, raised me from the dead, and I'm before his throne, this is crazy. But the question is, I got one minute left. I want to steward it well. Is this, how are we working through it in our church? <clears throat> how are we working through the end impacting now? Well, for us, one of the things that we see based on Acts is that Paul allowed ministry in the different divisions where God graced people. He anointed where you grew up, where you got saved, and the missiological sphere that he's given to you. And so we are to maximize the, miss, the mission sphere through evangelism that God has given us without apologizing for it. And so some of the things that we're doing, we're committed to church planting. We planted a church in Camden, New Jersey, worst city in America, doing well. Brooklyn, New York, they're launching next month. Germantown section of Philly, South Central LA. Next year, Wilmington, Delaware, Baltimore, Southwest Philly. 11 churches in Malawi, Africa. Empowering them and we're moving out of their way. And I can't wait to see them ahead. We just came over there, we said we wanna help you guys. And guess what, we don't, we don't know what we're doing. You just say we got some resources and we know a few things. We're gonna give this to you. You contextualize it and you empower your people. And I don't even know all the people that's gonna be impacted, but I know that one day that in this Perusia scene, we'll be in heaven chilling together. Amen. Chilling forever and ever and ever. And so our church, as it becomes multi, more and more multi-ethnic, we want to see people of different ethnicities submitted to the Lord Jesus and in turn becoming missionaries globally and engaging for us indigenous residents in our neighborhood, the student population and those entering our community through gentrification. One of the things that I told my church in closing, the church of God that I pastor, because we're in a, tri a trying neighborhood, average income is $15,000 per six to eight person household. Um, 20, 250 drug strips in each direction around us within a two mile radius around us at ground zero. A lot of justice issues in our neighborhood. Most people rent. And I told my church, I told our church, I said, <clears throat> if we're multi-ethnic on Sunday and don't impact the needs of the poor African-Americans in this community, our multi-ethnicity is just a museum. So my prayer for us at Epiphany, I don't know what your prayer is for you, 
is that we would maximize utilizing the fact that Christ is coming back as a way to influence not just some cool thing that's happening now, but to dig down deep based on the might of the gospel influencing and strengthening us based on Colossians 1.29 and God using us to make an uncomfortable difference in the world by going. Father, we thank you. We honor you and we bless you for this opportunity. Mighty one, mighty one, you do only what you can do in helping us to become um, what we're supposed to become and help us not to be afraid of the discomfort, um, being out of our depth, but that you would challenge us to be trailers. Trailers of the coming attraction of the return of the Lord Jesus. You've already given us the power for it. The gospel is mighty. Your arm is not too short that you can't save. We thank you and we honor you for that. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.